Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 7.57 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is uh, the, I don't know, it's Thursday. Wow. The 13th of August, 2020. This is episode 270 of Bitcoin and I made it, man. My name is up in lights. But before we get to that one, before we get there, I want to tell you about uh, Pleb Security Congress. This is a Kairos Agoras, that is at K-A-R-O-Z-A-G-O-R-U-S on Twitter. And uh, I don't think that I have... Uh, spoken about this one yet uh so, so if i have please forgive me but it, you know if i have it's also a reminder of what's coming up from september the 5th through september the 6th that'll be a saturday and a sunday i am on uh kero uh github which is github.com forward slash kero forward slash pleb security congress and it seems to be a first annual sovereign security congress for a brighter future and Bitcoin. So he's got a little release here. So let's see what exactly what, if we can find out what this is. Uh, he, he starts writing and says, a time comes in one's life when one must stop and think, examining its situation within the world to see how it is being affected by it in order to see the road ahead. The year 2020 so far posed unprecedented turbulence for many with governmental overreach of power and the endless printing of money accelerating more negative events are expected to come god i hope the three gorges dam isn't going to be the next jesus as we progress forward even more apparent it starts to become the attention to at one point or another will eventually focus on to bitcoin and its users by those who are in power Since the avenues to attack Bitcoin are slowly closing in, or excuse me, even by some considered to be beyond possible, new forms of attacks will start emerging that directly attempt to target the social layer of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Individuals are simply not prepared. Big governments plan to uh, bring about the control of Bitcoin will be an asymmetrical battlefront. Governments around the world will slowly attempt to encircle and then eliminate the power of the sovereign individual who newly managed to regain their freedom throughout the use of Bitcoin. In a few years, national banks within the United States will introduce a custodial storage solution for Bitcoin, and with that, further bring it under control by capturing a large percentage of its supply. The next logical step for governments is to fully control the movement of Bitcoin with more invasive KMC AML solutions that will prevent users from withdrawing their funds from exchanges or banks into individual custody. One of the next logical steps for those in power now is to start attacking us, Bitcoiners, 
in order to render our ability to organize impossible by holding the Bitcoin under their control and making it impossible for the social layer to organize, it may reach its goal if we let them. This Security Congress was created here to make it possible for Bitcoiners to get informed, get educated, and to be able to debate these issues amongst themselves while receiving valuable input from knowledgeable individuals among them. It is important that we start talking about these issues right now, not later. Hashtag Bitcoin only Congress for ideologically aligned individuals to strengthen and protect the social organization of Bitcoins against hostile interest. Announcement work is in progress. Details will be added here. Confirmed presenters will be <clears throat> K, uh, K Rose Agris. And I am sorry, that is not his Twitter handle. His Twitter handle is at BTC Dragonlord, all one word. That's at BTC D R A G O N L O R D. That is how you get a hold of K Rose Agris. I'm, I'm really sorry about that, man. I should know better. Uh, there is Jakey, is going to be a presenter. Katoshi is going to be a presenter, Hodelanot, Alexandra, and Francis Puglia. And I can't imagine him not being part of this. I think it's a good idea. Shit's going to, I mean, shit is never going to stop coming at us. I mean, even if it's not directed at us, shit is just never going to stop coming. We got to find a way out. We, we have to. This has become untenable. I, I can't imagine sitting around my house thinking that every, this is just okay. Freaking Mnuchin is panhandling like a bum on a street corner for spare change. Literally put out a tweet saying, please, for the love of God, get your spare change out of your couch cushions or wherever it is that you've got some and go spend it. Or better yet, take it to a bank so that they can distribute it. The chairman of the Federal Reserve of the United States is on the street corner panhandling for spare change. This is not good. I am really kind of excited that uh, BTC Dragonlord is putting this up. He's doing a lot of work on this. So are all, I, I am assuming, so are all the presenters. I am going to be there, not as a presenter, because, you know, I'm, I don't have anything to present. And I have not been asked, but I will definitely be in the audience. And I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work. None of us do, but we have until September the 5th, uh, or, well, I guess the 4th to figure it out, considering that it begins Saturday, September the 5th, and ends uh, September the 6th, which is that uh, following Sunday. So again, this is github.com forward slash Cairo Zagoras forward slash Pleb Security Congress. Good job, guys. Uh, I Okay, now, <clears throat> my name is now up in lights. I have been featured in crypto news or rather crypto-news.net by Zoran Spirkovsky. And I hope I'm pronouncing the gentleman's name uh, correctly. You know me, I can't pronounce foreign names worth a damn. But uh, he wrote, he penned this one on August the 12th and says, Ethereum total supply, total drama. Crypto Twitter is buzzing with activity and banter between BTC and ETH maximalist with members on both sides of the spectrum poking and prodding at each other in an effort to claim, quote, victory as to be seen as the cause of this bull run. And here I come. He's got a tweet of me replying to Vitalik. Yes, yes. Yay for me. I am replying to his August 7th tweet that says the present supply is clearly known. Here it is. What you're looking for is verification that the consensus rules were followed, which you can do by running one of multiple implementations. And then he gives like this number of how much ETH is out there, 
And we all know that that's bullshit because they can't count, which is what prompted me to reply uh, to his tweet that says, it's not clear at all. And I put a screenshot of like five different numbers for ETH from five different places to get that number. Blockchair, uh, Markandu, etherscan.io, ethexplorer.io, eth.token. All of them give separate numbers. It is not clear. It's not going to be clear. Nobody can figure this shit out. All right. Continuing on. Fueled by the lack of great defense on the ETH side, especially by people saying it doesn't matter what the supply is, the race was on to debunk ETH and completely eliminate the demand for the crypto, except it was a rat race, one that was destined to fail. Many were claiming that ETH's value proposition is overvalued because it's not easy to see the total supply of the cryptocurrency. Finally, Andres Antonopoulos cleared the chatter and broke it down as clearly as he could. He explained why calculating the ETH total supply is irrelevant. Uh, and the re- oh sorry it hurts when I say that and the reasons why it's difficult to produce the same exact results when compared to Bitcoin according to Andreas the reason is the difference in how balances are calculated ETH relies on an account uh, an account balance model while BTC relies on a coin fragment system or the UTXOs counting the supply is not as easy as counting UTXOs ETH also produced more blocks than BTC and includes uncles. And cousins, I guess. I don't know. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has a winner-takes-all mechanism, as Andreas put it. He pointed to Mark Andre Dumas' answer about ETH's current total supply, which came from his own calculations and verification. As far as I've seen, nobody else really bothered to go through the motions of running the scripts. So we are all very lucky that Mark was not only competent, but considerate enough to care. That's some maker goodness right there. Nonetheless... The meme does not want to simply die, and this following tweet finally summarizes the attitude of community members looking to attack ETH on the total supply issue, and it's a cartoon of a guy saying, I'm mad, and another guy saying, well, here's a solution, and the other guy burns, takes the solution from the other guy and burns it and says, I don't want a solution. I want to be mad. All right, so that's it. I am now famous. I am now famous. Thank you, Zorin. And uh, Zorin followed me. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, he's poking fun at us, but he's, yeah, I'm not going to get into his shit about it. I think he's wrong. I think this is important. I don't think Andreas cleared it up. I don't think this guy writing this one freaking script cleared anything up. Why? Because even if I was sure that that script written and what Andreas said completely cleared the air, there's the following is never going to be cleared up. Five years later five years and no one thought to audit the supply of ETH until now are you kidding me that cloud will never be cleared away that they waited five years to give a shit about something as important as how much ETH there actually is and all of that is going to come back here in a few minutes. That's going to do it for Community News. I'm kind of hungry. I'm kind of hungry for yams. We're going to talk about it. This is uh, William Foxy right, Foxley writing this one for Coindesk way back on August the 12th. That was, well, yesterday. Okay. 
Deposits in monetary experiment meme token YAM break $460 million U.S. Mm, wow, this sounds good. I, I can't wait to see what happens here. YAM by YAM Finance is a mishmash of DeFi products packaged in one humble tuber generally meant to track the U.S. dollar or as the founding team puts it, YAM is a minimally viable monetary experiment which can be translated to say that the project has no real purpose. It's it's just for fun. That hasn't stopped DeFi traders from piling in. Yam's market cap sits at 13.5 million with some 29,361,386 in 24-hour trade volume, according to CoinGecko. The experiment joins a cornucopia of other DeFi summer meme coins, such as Tendies and Wi-Fi. Its code base pulls from the from multiple other DeFi projects, including Compound's on-chain governance, Curve's governed treasury, and Uniswap's pools for token distribution, not to mention a few others. Uniswap is where the magic is happening right now, called yield farming. Uniswap gives token market liquidity providers a proportional amount of the platform's native token, YAM, back for their troubles. Place a token pair like ETH over COMP, in a pool and get yams in return, the logic runs. Farming has dragged these other tokens up alongside yam. Six of the eight coins available for yield farming posted positive gains in 24 hours with Compound's comp token take uh, token up 49%, according to Mizari, over a $300 million increase in market capitalization. Yam is most most notably borrows from Ampleforce Elastic Supply Schedule called a rebase. The project's code will spout new tokens at set intervals to push or pull yams price back towards $1. Traders are rushing in to scoop up price gains before the rebase occurs. According to the blog, founders Brock Elmore, Trent Elmore, Clinton Bembry, Dan Eltzer, and Will Price conducted no pre-mind, garnered no VC interest, and took no founder's share. The team could could not be reached by press time. The reckless speed at which the project has grown is not lost on the team, particularly because YAM has never passed a food inspection, so to speak. The code base has never been audited, a fact the founders are quite upfront about. And here's a tweet from YAM Finance says, We were serious about this being an experiment and the code being unaudited. Please exercise some caution. That was on uh, August the 11th. Quote, uh, Nothing approaching the rigor of a formal audit has been conducted at this time. The Medium article reads, Quote, this was a 10-day project from start to launch. Well, yeah, it's just, it's a meme token, guys. What, honestly, what on earth could possibly go wrong? Oh, you know, I I think it's fine. We're going to move into this one. This is just a little aside here as we we move through the stack for this morning. Uh, I've got a tweet out that is retweeting... uh, Oh, at 13prince31, that's 13prince31, who just posted, he posted one word, says, right. And a screenshot that shows a gas fee of 3.265 Ethereum, which is uh, around 1,288 bucks to send three Ether. So he wants to send three Ether and it's going to cost him 3.26 Ether to send. So his... Amount plus the gas fee is 6.265 or t- about right at $2,500. I wonder what could be going on. I mean, that's the awfully, awfully high uh, gas fees, but let's see what's going on with this one. Uh, Cointelegraph's Benjamin Prius or Pyrus is writing this one. 
uh, about 15 hours ago. Oh my. Yam suffers a technical outage following scam accusations. Say it ain't so, brother. Yam Finance uncovered a bug the day after Shapeshift CEO Eric Voorhees called the project a scam? No way. Yam Finance, the latest fad in the crypto space, recently warned the public of a technical bug affecting the ecosystem. Quote, we have found a bug in the rebasing contract, the project said on, in an August the 12th tweet. Quote, all funds in staking contract are safe, and this is an unrelated part of the protocol. The project added, also noting participants' YAM token re- holdings remain unaltered. As the decentralized finance or DeFi crypto boom continues, something called yield farming has come into the spotlight. Yield farming is essentially the latest passive income fad in crypto. YAM has risen to the top of a conversation recently as the headline act in the yield farming sector. Unlike many assets in the crypto space, YAM boasts a fluid token supply in search of value stability based on the market, previous Cointelegraph reporting explained. <clears throat> the process involves rebasing and YCRV, a YAM stablecoin, quote, rebases following the initial rebase will mint more YAM than intended, YAM Finance said of the recently uncovered bug in the subsequent tweet. Further tweets explained the project's proposed bug solution, including setting a zero rebase level. The stated bug follows an August the 11th tweet from Shapeshift CEO and crypto expert Eric Voorhees in which he called Yam a scam. Yam holds as just the latest hype-driven speculative crypto bet amid overall soaring prices. I don't know, man. Sounds like something may be afoot. What's this one? What's this one? Uh, Let's see. Five hours to failure. Oh, wow. The Save Yam proposal is falling short. Oh, no. This seems like it's maybe getting worse. Martin Young writing it for Cointelegraph nine hours ago. Uh, a Yam Finance code flaw saw the project ask investors to pledge to save the platform and not enough have. The future of the Yam Finance yield farming protocol hangs in the balance as it awaits token deposits for a governance vote that could save the project. With less than five hours to go, YAM is only a third of the way towards the 160,000 tokens required. A code bug discovered earlier today in one of YAM Finance's smart contracts sent the hottest thing in DeFi into a tailspin as it scrambles to find a fix through its decentralized governance system. The project posted an update outlining the issues and making a plea to stakeholders for them to pledge their tokens to save the platform. And here's a tweet from YAM Finance. Uh, This is... 7.24 7.24 p.m. August the 12th. That was yesterday afternoon or evening. Uh, we need yam farmers to act now. If we are successful, yam holders will very likely vote to reward those voters who helped save the protocol. Ooh, this sounds like a bribe. Read on for more details. Huh. Sounds like something may be wrong here. Uh, the code flaw causes more tokens than were intended to be minted through a system called rebasing, which was supposed to allocate 10% of them into a treasury Via a dollar-pegged stablecoin, this causes too much collateral to enter the treasury, impeding future governance actions. In order to fix the flaw, two proposals were made to reset rebase levels and essentially restart the system. It was or initially thought that 35,000 YAM tokens would be enough to achieve the governance vote. However, Compound Finance CEO Robert Leshner, who warned about the risks on launch day, advised the team that 160,000 tokens would be required. The Save Yam blog post summarizing recent events added that if governance is unable to submit a bug fix proposal prior to the second rebase, 
No further governance actions will be possible due to the amount of yam in the reserve. It added a stark warning that, quote, if this happens, the yam treasury will become ungovernable and these funds will be lost, quote. Oh, man. At the time of writing, there have been over 56,000 votes delegated, but with less than five hours to go, chances of reaching the target are looking slim. Delegated tokens need to remain in YAM wallets until 9 a.m. UTC Sunday, August the 16th, for them to count, which presents another risk for yield farmers if the platform collapses. DeFi expert Cooper Turley, there's already experts in DeFi? Nice. I'm sh- surely he'll, he'll save them. Okay. Co- he commented, on the possibility of not reaching the required amount for the governance vote due to the high gas fees. Oh, that, okay, the gas fees that I was talking about, how how high they were. Okay, so here we go. This this will explain that. that. Uh, let's see, uh, Koopa Thupa's got a tweet here that they've included. It says, fascinating experiment in yam coordination. Will community members eat $100 in gas to save the YCRV treasury? Feel like this is a pretty crucial turning point for the project. Okay. The YAM token was launched with zero value, but rapidly surged to as high in excess of $165, according to CoinGecko. The amount of collateral deposited over the past 30 hours since launch has topped, oh, $570 million, according to Yamalytics. Oh, well, I'm I'm sure everything's going to be fine. I mean, honestly... Dude, this is fine.gif. Rebase bug permanently breaks yam governance. Oh my, three hours ago, Andrey Shevchenko is writing this one for Cointelegraph, says a bug in the hastily developed contracts for yam finance resulted in the governance contracts being, oh God, permanently broken and $750,000 worth of curve tokens locked from use. Andre Kronje, DeFi developer and founder of the Yearn, protocol told Cointelegraph that this resulted from a bugged rebase function. YAM is supposed to be a stable coin with a similar mechanism to Ampleforth with the contracts creating or destroying supply based on the token's price to maintain a $1 peg. Kronji, or Crone, I don't know how to pronounce it, said that a bug in the rebase function meant that each call after the first one would exponentially increase supply every time by, good God, 10 to the 18th? Whoa, holy smokes. This results in a massive influx of new tokens, far more than there should have been. Oh, no, 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 no. Yam's going to be fine, I'm sure. Uh, But there were three parts to the bug, according to Cronjay. The issue was compounded by an additional mechanism used by Yam to rebalance the token's price. The rebase function also sells into the YCRV slash YAM pool up to a max of 10% slippage, he said, to ensure that the price reflects the updated supply. The proceeds from the sale and remaining YAM are sent into the project's treasury contract. A further aspect of the system is its governance, which requires a percentage of all tokens to be committed to a proposal for 12.5 hours, while there were earlier concerns about not enough tokens being delegated, triggering a support campaign to get holders to vote, this was ultimately futile. Since the rebase created a huge amount of new yam and sent it to the treasury contract, it now holds the vast majority of all the tokens. This means the available yam on the market aren't enough to reach quorum. Oh, no, I'm sure it's going to be fine. The result is that both the governance and the treasury are now bricked and cannot be accessed. The rebase bug cannot be fixed without access to governance. 
So this should, in theory, spell the death of the project, or at least its existing smart contracts and tokens. Does that mean people are going to lose money, Annie? Oh, no. I'm okay. Look, it's it it it's gonna be it's gonna be fine. I honestly, I I just don't see this as as an actual problem. Uh, surely William Foxley, writing for CoinDesk, uh, has something to say about this. This was uh, written. Uh, let's see. Uh, hold on. Um, oh, sorry about that. No, I've already read the William Foxley one. Patty Baker is going to save our is going to save the yam from the oven. Uh, she's writing for CoinDesk. When was this one? Oh, sometime sometime very fairly early this morning. Says yam's market cap falls from sixty million to zero in thirty five minutes. Nah, it can't be right. Surely, it can't be right. Two day old DeFi project yam has seen its market cap evaporate in under an hour as a desperate last minute attempt to fix a bug in the code ultimately failed. Okay, this is a, a basically she, she's doing her bullet point thing again, so bear with me. Uh, data from price site CoinGecko shows the total value of YAM collapsed from roughly 60 million at 740 UTC to zero dollars by 815, 35 minutes later. The price of YAM tokens, which peaked at roughly $167 at 1730 UTC, has spiraled down to barely 14 at just before 8 a.m. Okay, no. Come on, man. I mean, I'm going to need this for Thanksgiving. Guys, YAM can't go away. Having only launched on Tuesday, YAM was a yield farming protocol where tokens were intended to keep parity with the U.S. dollar through loosening or contracting supply. Its relative newness, uh, though, meant that the code hadn't been properly audited. A bug was soon discovered that effectively meant the protocol would keep printing dud YAM tokens that would prevent token holders from making any governance decisions. Oh, so that's confirmed. Okay. Uh, a last-minute attempt to save the protocol failed, and co-founder Brock Elmore pronounced the project dead at 8.01 a.m. UTC. No, Yam, Yam can't go away. Yam's market cap went to zero moments later. The project announced a plan to migrate to... Oh, here it is. This is why we're safe. The project announced a plan to migrate to Yam 2.0 just before press time. Oh, thank God this is fine.gif. Crypto exchange Gate.io announced it will reinstate deposits and withdrawals for YAM with trading set to resume at 2.30 p.m. UTC. See, guys, we're saved. I mean, long, you know, YAM is dead. Long live YAM 2.0. Let's finish this one off uh, with Ethereum gas fees touch 200 GUI as defiers farm YAM. Now, this was from yesterday. Uh, let's see, this may connect the Ethereum gas prices to this uh, yam, which is clearly not dead. Clearly, it's absolutely not dead. Can't be dead. Ashwath Prakashanan, and I'm sorry I butchered your name, sir, uh, from, from CryptoBriefing.com has this to say. Uh, let's see, Ethereum gas fees touch 200 GUI as DeFi's farm yam. Okay. Uh, transaction fees on Ethereum cross 200 GUI today, posing a real threat to the mass adoption of DeFi. Previous moves to increase the gas limits did nothing but enrich the network's miners. The push for Layer 2 is the most viable solution to reduce the cost of using Ethereum. Uh, DeFi protocols rely on high levels of usage to generate fees and eventually profits for token holders, but transaction fees have reached a threshold where the cost of using Ethereum offsets potential profits. At 200 GUI per unit of gas, 
using Ethereum is more expensive than ever. This is paving the way for DeFi protocols on other blockchains such as Cosmos and Solana. However, the majority of DeFi users and liquidity is still on Ethereum. Whales, who account for most of DeFi usage, have no problem paying $10 fees to swap tokens or 20 to supply to tokens in a money market. But if DeFi wants to steal market share from CeFi, cheaper transaction costs are the need of the hour. The only real winners here are Ethereum miners who are making bank through exponentially rising income from fees. Total revenue to Ethereum miners increased over 1,400% this quarter, which pushed Ethereum ahead of Bitcoin in terms of miner revenue. However, there is evidence that miners themselves are spamming the blockchain with transactions to keep fees artificially high. Miners also unilaterally passed an increase in the blockchain's gas limit, which isn't a real solution. All this does is increase the workload for those operating Ethereum nodes while putting money in miner pockets. Layer 2 solutions build a subnetwork on top of an existing blockchain and promise to bring transaction costs to sustainably low levels. Thank God. Loopring and Diversify and a few other DeFi products exist on Layer 2 ecosystems, but they account for a tiny portion of total DeFi usage. Two other remedies exist in the form of EIP-1559 and ETH 2.0. While EIP-1559 won't reduce gas fees, it can make fees more predictable and reduce the possibility of minor manipulation. ETH 2.0 will bring sharding to Ethereum, which enhances the scalability of the base blockchain. However, considering the trade-offs between ETH 2.0 and Layer 2 solutions, the latter is far more viable as it doesn't exponentially add to the size of the Ethereum blockchain. And there you have it, people. I don't know how much else of a post-mortem I can give on the death of Stupid. Well, no, Stupid's always going to be with us, but Yam is dead. And this Yam 2.0 nonsense, if you did not, if you did not learn your lesson, then you deserve everything else that you get out of this fucking DeFi shit. Stop being stupid with your money. Stop it. There's this get rich quick mentality is spreading faster than Rona. Okay. It's faster than Rona, probably a hell of a lot uglier than Rona. I'd rather catch Rona than to catch this kind of stupid. Stop being stupid with your money. Major indices trading sideways or something or other like that. Ah, uh, S&P is up like 0.04. NASDAQ's up over a half. Dow Jones is down a quarter. FTSE is down one and a quarter. Nikkei is up one and three quarters. Hang Seng is flat. Shanghai is flat. And the uh, VIX uh, has fallen one and a half points. Let's see what bonds did. Meh. They're just chilling out. But as a, but oh wait hold on the big news, the German ten year bund will only cost you 0.4 percent to hold now. So that's good news for all the people holding German ten years. Uh, West Texas Intermediate its last was forty two dollars and sixty three cents a barrel. Uh, that's just like a hair down on the downside. Natural gas. Uh, back up one and a half percent. It'll cost you two dollars and eighteen cents for a thousand cubic feet of that stuff. Gold is still below 2000 It is at 1952 Silver is at 26.8. So that's a 3% gain. Uh, poor man's gold is what they used to call it. Let's talk about some real money here. Bitcoin is at 
11,526, that is gonna be the high. I got a low over at, mm, looks like it's gonna be GDAX at 11,480, 337,000 transactions in the last 24 hours, gives us 14,000 average, or 14,000 transactions on average per hour. Uh, hair under 1 million BTC have been sent in that period. That's about 40,000 BTC being sent per hour. Yeah. Uh, 2.83 BTC is the average transaction value and the median transaction value is still high, man. 0.046 BTC, that's about 530 bucks. Block times are still low at nine minutes and 14 seconds. We have 0.79 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 122.79 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. Only a hair smidgen to the downside on difficulty, but the hash rate is at 130.9 exahashes per second. Ethereum is at 391, Bcash at 281, BSV at 203, Litecoin at 54 and change, Ethereum Classic at $6.71, and Doge, as usual, 0.0034. 56,685 transactions on the Doge network brings it above Ethereum Classic. Litecoin and Bcash with it, with its 16,346 transactions. Mega yikes. Let's see what Clark Moody has to say about stuff. First, the price that Clark Moody is showing is 11,520. It would appear that there are 20,000 transactions waiting to clear, and that's going to take about 12 blocks to do. Lightning capacities seems to have grown a smidge. 980.89 BTC are giving us $11.3 million of liquidity across 7,360 nodes, representing 36,444 channels and a big bump in Tor capacity. 444.41 BTC uh, is in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that gives us 45.3% in Tor. I think that's an all-time high. Not sure. But we have uh, 2,160 tour nodes, and that's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. We're going to start this one off with the announcement from a new news agency, BTC Times. Yes, I am aware that the backers of this new uh, Bitcoin publication are, uh, there's some shit coiners in there. I get it. I do. I'm going to give them a shot. They get a chance to not screw this up. So I'm going to start this one off with the opening article by Lena Sesh or Sesh. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Uh, she says, cutting through the noise. So this is btctimes.com. Again, that's btctimes.com. This was written on August the 8th. Today marks the third anniversary of the day that segregated witness reached lock-in threshold on the Bitcoin network, demonstrating the power and sovereignty of Bitcoin users, as well as the resilience of the Bitcoin network as a whole. A little over a decade into the Bitcoin era, the ecosystem has experienced tremendous growth and public awareness of Bitcoin has come a long way. What started as an endeavor of the cypherpunk movement has turned into an asset with global traction that most people have at least heard of. As public opinion in Bitcoin has picked up in massively or picked up massively in recent months, access to reliable information on the events that move the space plays a decisive role in furthering the growth of our industry. 
this is why today we are happy to announce the launch of the BTC Times, a project we have spent the last year planning, designing, and building. The BTC Times will offer daily coverage of news and developments surrounding Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Not off to a good start, y'all. The uh, Through reports, deep dives, and op-eds from subject matter experts, we seek to capture the economic, political, and social impact of these technologies. The BTC Times is led by our editorial board, comprising CASA co-founder and CTO Jameson Lopp, Bloomberg columnist Elaine Owl, former Bitsy marketing director Lena Seish, Bitcoin Magazine's technical editor Aaron Von Weirdem, and Bitcoin educator Giacomo Zucco. <laughs> nice, I like Giacomo, man. He's cool. Uh, let's see. Our mission is simple. We will deliver quality reporting of the news you care about. We will cover stories and ask questions that others don't. We will address FUD and bad takes in the media. To realize this pursuit, we have teamed up with top journalists who have years of experience in Bitcoin journalism and regularly cover the events in the industry with diligence. The BTC Times is extremely privileged to be joined by reputable investors who share our goals and ideals. Our supporters include Litecoin creator Charlie Lee, Bitcoin investor Alistair Milne, Blockstream CSO Samson Moe, and former Monero lead maintainer Ricardo Spagni. We're excited to start this journey and hope you will join us and enjoy reading the BTC Times. So there you go. Uh, uh, we we shall see. But again, I, you know, if I go to their news tab, I'm on BTC.com new, forward slash news right now. And if I go to the news tab at the very bottom, they have an entire section of, well, they have Bitcoin, business, markets, technology, and altcoins as uh as headings for how they're going to segregate their news again not the best look but i'm going to give them a shot and we'll start this one off with uh cole peterson writing for the btc times researcher ethereum network's reliance on fast sync could expose a major security flaw the crypto community, oh, sorry, this was written August the 12th. The crypto community has been enthralled in recent days by recent developments regarding Ethereum's total supply, which remains a mystery, despite attempts from Ethereum developers and community members to clarify the confusion. Pseudonymous researcher Data, what, Data Veteran, is now noting that a flaw within the default network structure of Ethereum could open the gates for a bad actor to arbitrarily adjust the cryptocurrency's monetary supply for themselves. The potential exploit came about due to the network's heavy reliance on a fast sync mode that Ethereum geth nodes default to. Concerns regarding the lack of clarity surrounding Ethereum circulating supply have led one researcher to muse the possibility that savvy attackers could exploit the network and adjust the monetary supply however they chose. Ethereum nodes by default run fast sync that help increase the speed at which a node can connect to the network. Rather than starting from the Genesis block, a fast sync allows the node to only sync two weeks of transactions by locating the chain with the most proof of work. Data Veteran discussed this facet of the Ethereum network while speaking to the BTC Times, saying, quote, In Ethereum, it's impossible to compute the money supply in advance for a given block height. Also, everybody that joins the Ethereum network relies on fast sync that blindly accepts an older state to be true, end quote. He further explained, that the heavy reliance on FastSync exposes what could be a major flaw in the network with a savvy attack, allowing bad actors to create an arbitrary money supply for themselves. Quote, with a proper attack, 
Sinking a fast note allows the attacker to come up with an arbitrary money supply for themselves. It's scary to think what could go wrong if, it, if an exchange had to reset their Ethereum node from scratch. Ugh. Currently, the time required to conduct a full sync of the Ethereum blockchain is just north of 30 days, which in part is part of the reason why Ethereum users have become so reliant on fast syncs. An Ethereum full node takes up over four terabytes of com computational space. That's actually memory space, not computation. Data veteran elaborated on the process to conduct such an attack in a recent, uh, a recent thread of tweets in which he explains that the system could be gamed if someone creates a reorganization of the blockchain that extends further than two weeks. Quote, the only thing to game the system is if you can create a reorganization that is more than two weeks. Then fast sync will not be the same as full sync, which is highly problematic. There's no more consensus, end quote. The scenario in which this becomes a real possibility is if the blockchain splits in two due to a large disagreement within the Ethereum community and denigrates the hash power existing on each chain. So, yeah, so great. great you know, it... But still, guys, don't worry. You don't need to know how much Ethereum has, is out there. It's just, it's not important. Probably not important to Milk, Mike Belshi either. Invest 3% in Bitcoin to avoid COVID-19 lockdown devaluation, says BitGo CEO. 22 hours ago, William Suberg is writing this for Cointelegraph. The U.S. has made a rod for its own back with lockdown. An institutional are in, and institutional investors already know it. Argues Mike Belshi. Remember, before we get into this, Mike Belshi was 100% on the S2X side. He wanted bigger blocks. Keep that in mind when you're talking about BitGo and Mike Belshi. Coronavirus lockdowns will force people out of fiat currency and into gold and Bitcoin (BTC). The CEO of cryptocurrency asset manager BitGo has warned in a series of tweets on August the 12th, Mike Belshi strongly urged investors to divert a minimum of 3% of their portfolio into Bitcoin. As multiple jurisdictions around the world re-enter compulsory lockdown conditions, Belshi said that in the United States, the government had made a prison for itself using the policy, quote, the government is being forced to maintain lockdowns for political correctness, which will force them to print money even faster. Institutional investors are flagging this and recognize the devaluation will make cash hard to hold, he wrote. Those institutions hit the headlines conspicuously this week when billion-dollar corporation MicroStrategy confirmed it had adopted Bitcoin as its treasury reserve asset. A $250 million buy-in cemented the sense of change, with CEO Michael Saylor highlighting Bitcoin's unique properties that at, as money. Sorry, Quote, they're looking for alternatives, and it comes down to Bitcoin and gold, Belshi continued. Quote, if you don't have some Bitcoin now, it is time to put at least 3% of your net worth into Bitcoin. This is the lowest risk, highest asymmetric upside investment you will likely see in your lifetime or stop the lockdown, but still get Bitcoin, end quote. <clears throat> As Cointelegraph reported, the premises behind lockdowns have come under heavy criticism from Bitcoin supporters. In particular, the Bitcoin standard author, Saifedean Amis, has lambasted the measure as being far more detrimental to the population of a country in the long term than the coronavirus itself. The criticism follows on from that contained in Amos's book and others critical of the economic policy on spread, spending and borrowing, such as Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. 
A clear relationship between inflationary fiat currency and reduced prosperity means that Bitcoin is the only genuine solution for those who wish to save for the future. This week, the message became all the more clear as data showed correlation between Bitcoin price action and expanding central bank balance sheets. Okay, so there you go. Uh, you know, I, I don't agree with Mike Belshi on almost everything, but I agree with him on this. This, this, this nonsense is going to get out of control and people are going to get hurt or killed is what's going to happen. Now, I will say it one more time. I am not a coronavirus disbeliever. I think it's out there. I think if you catch it, it's probably not a good thing. But life eventually has to, you know, go on. We have to be able to do stuff, conduct business, go buy shit. And, you know, and, and all the hoop and hollering about it is 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 not helping. And I just think that Mike's right. I think he should probably put 3% of shit into Bitcoin because we don't know... We don't know what's on the other side of this whole thing, except one thing, the amount of money printing going on, not just in the United States, is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this before. We certainly haven't seen it under these types of conditions before. It's not going to end well. Bitcoin is a safe haven because you can't print any more of it. You just can't. So, yeah. Follow Mike's advice. One more thing about the statement from, uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, MicroStrategy. The MicroStrategy buy. Uh, I want to say just a couple of things about Michael, the CEO, Michael Saylor. About a year ago, he tweeted out that Bitcoin was dead. If you did not see that, you should at least go back through his timeline and maybe uh, I would use Twitter advanced search and put in uh, Michael Saylor's Twitter account. And then just type in hashtag Bitcoin and scroll back, see what he said about Bitcoin. In the end, I mean, well, you know, first it's it's a it's a situation of first they laugh at you, and then everybody becomes a Bitcoiner because there's what is coming can probably not be stopped, except maybe by this guy. Well, actually, not by this guy. What am I talking about? Coming soon, Craig Wright, the movie and book. By Calvin Air. Now, this is Turner Wright, uh, right, pinning this one for Cointelegraph sometime early this morning. Calvin Air, the most high-profile supporter of Craig Wright, is funding a new documentary and a book about the life of the Satoshi claimant. BSV, or Bitcoin SV benefactor, uh, Calvin Air has announced he's funding the documentary centered around the life and times of Craig Wright, the Australian man who claims to have invented Bitcoin. According to an August 12th tweet from Air, the billionaire BSV backer and in-chain board member has already given the go-ahead to filming and provided an in-production still. Air said he has hired a documentary film crew from London and they will dig through everything regarding Wright's claim to be Satoshi Nakamoto. Reaction to the news was typically divided between BSV supporters like Neil Gallagher, who said the more exposure on this topic, the better for everyone, and doubters like Crypto Geek, who labeled it a propaganda piece. <laughs> Air also revealed he has hired an investigative reporter to write a book about Wright after the Australian publisher canceled Behind the Mask, Craig Wright, and the battle for Bitcoin in January. A firm press told local media at the time the book had been dropped because, quote, the threat of litigation was just too high. Air offered to fund and publish the book himself, but nothing came of it. Asked about the incident this week, Air said he was now working with a writer on our own book, 
quote. Quote, they said it was not a catch and kill, but they would have if they were paid to ice the book. I am suspicious, but we have a reputable investigative reporter who will dig into the history and do a book for us, end quote, says Calvin Aird. The authors of Behind the Mask are yet to release a statement on the matter. However, if the book had provided evidence disputing Wright's claims of inventing Bitcoin, the publisher would have been wise to be cautious. Wright is particularly litigious, even when he doesn't have a particularly strong case, and has filed lawsuits against Blockstream CEO Adam Back and Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin for defamation for doubting his claims, and subsequently dropped both cases. A similar case against Roger Ver was dropped by a UK court in May. A case against podcaster Peter McCormick is ongoing. McCormick was recently ordered to pay around $24,000 in cost to write. Discovery in the matter begins on September the 4th. I, I don't know about that one. And also, do not forget Space Cat is also being, is also being sued by uh, our, our friend, Greg, whatever. Wright is not the only member of his family with ambitions to feature in a crypto-related movie. His sister, Lisa N. Edwards, who runs a trading group called Satoshi's Sister, is developing a feature called Coin Runners based around her life as a Bitcoin trader. God, this family is a piece of work, man. A work of fiction. <laughs> yes, it acts, a work of fiction featuring such scenes as a Porsche going over a cliff. The movie has been put on hold until the coronavirus is over, according to a May 4th update by Edwards. In other movie news, Cointelegraph reported in June that Hollywood would be producing a movie based on the, on the book Bitcoin Billionaires, with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, a recent release called Money Planes, starring Adam Copeland, featured a plot about a heist from a bulletproof casino in the sky carrying $1 billion in cryptocurrency. Oh, that sounds bad. So Calvin Ayers making a movie about Craig Wright. Oh, man. Oh. God, the circus never ends. The monkeys never die. The real reason Venezuela is now accepting crypto for taxes. This is Jose Antonio Lanz writing for Decrypt.co sometime yesterday. The government of Venezuela is about to start using the Petro within its tax system. But in truth, this has much more to do with the United States dollar than its state-backed crypto. Reports abound today that the South American nation of Venezuela will soon start to accept crypto from its citizens for tax payments. But, of course, like we said, the reality is not so straightforward. The Bolivarian Council of Mayors, a government body that brings together 305 left-wing mayors and one opposition mayor from the country's 335 municipalities earlier this week, signed a document known as the National Agreement on Municipal Tax Harmonization. This legal instrument seeks to optimize the tax system in Venezuela's state-backed crypto, the Petro, is one of the tools it seeks to use to do so. But in Venezuela, using Petros is not the same as accepting Petros, such as for tax payments or anything else. In the document, the mayors agree to use the Petro as a unit of account, a peg used to calculate fines, fees, or taxes within the country. The Petro will also be used, for example, as a price reference for the value of one square meter of land for real estate tax purposes. But there is no official statement recognizing or even suggesting that the municipalities will accept national uh, crypto, the, the national crypto as a means of payment as this decision or and this decision, in fact, may have more to do with the government's love of the United States dollar than the Petro itself. Venezuela suffers from rampant inflation, a consistent, seemingly never ending devaluation of its fiat currency, the Bolivar. 
As a result, the United States dollar is king in Venezuela, even if foreign currencies are increasingly difficult to come by within the country. But the dollar's supremacy in Venezuela is such that goods and services are often, if not exclusively, priced in dollars, even while Venezuela earns, Venezuelans earn wages in increasingly worthless bolivars. That makes day-to-day life, dealing with everyday expenses such as food and shelter, very difficult for residents of the oil-rich nation. But even while most things in Venezuela are dollarized, it's impossible to do that with taxes, so politicians have done the next best thing. The petro is a crypto asset pegged to a basket of commodities valued in dollars. Accepting petros would allow the government to receive dollars indirectly. (laughs) I don't think it doesn't work that way. But the government doesn't want petros, it wants fiat. So using petros to calculate taxes without actually accepting them is the best way to dollarize taxes in practice without ever really touching the filthy American cash. What that effectively means for Venezuelan taxpayers is this. Prior, if a Venezuelan had a tax liability of 809,000 bolivars or 10 bucks on January 1, 2020 and waited until today to pay it, it would net the state just under $3 in tax money because of the inflation. But now, if a Venezuelan's tax liability is 0.5 petros, which on average is officially $30, then that would net the state $30 today, tomorrow, or next year, regardless of the bolivar's devaluation. Of course, The payment isn't made in Petro, but in Bolivars that the government can immediately exchange for the currency of the evil American empire. The mayor of the Vargas municipality, Jose Alejandro Terran, told VTV that the agreement demonstrates that the mayors are seeing the economy as a whole, assuring that the document allowed us to detach ourselves from a local vision and understand the economy globally. End quote. God, that's your mistake. You need to understand your local shit. That vision appears to be one in which everything in the Venezuelan economy is one day dollarized. That is everything except Venezuelans' wages. Oh, man, two things here. One, they're abandoning the currency. That's what this sounds like to me. That the, that the Venezuelan governments from, from the municipalities all the way up to the federal level have just had enough of their own currency and are literally just going to let it die in the street. That's what this sounds like to me, or the start of it anyway. Second thing is this. Let's see. Oh, um, I want to get back to th- this thing. Uh, the Petro will also be used, for example, as a price reference for the value of one square meter of land for real, est- real estate tax purposes. I've been thinking about this issue a lot and I put out a few tweets and I think I said something about it on a, on a podcast, uh, one of my podcasts before, but because I'm, I'm having more and more difficulty looking at Bitcoin in terms of fiat prices, they're starting to make less and less sense to me. What's making more and more sense to me is how much Bitcoin there is versus and how much I have versus the cost of the goods that I want. But the cost of the goods that I want are priced in dollars. So I'm continuously dragged back into that circle of having to price Bitcoin in terms of dollars. And I just don't think that that's the best way to go. So I came up with the idea of pricing Bitcoin in acres of arable land. And I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was I think it was somewhere around I think I came up with somewhere between 550 uh, acres of land to 780 acres of land 
per Bitcoin. And that's not just land, arable land. That means land you can grow stuff on. Okay, so that doesn't include things like, you know, wilderness areas, like mountainous with a bunch of trees on it and that you can't really do anything but hunt on it, right? That's not arable land, but that land still has value. So now I'm starting to think of it in terms of how much does an acre of arable land versus an acre of non-arable land and, you know, and what do those cost differently priced in Bitcoin and not in U.S. dollars? It looks like I'm not the only one thinking this way. And the only reason I'm thinking this way is that land, honestly, outside of it, like if you want to wait 500 years for like new land that was created in Hawaii to be, you know, usable, be my guest. I'm not including that land. And because of that, they ain't making no more of it because they ain't making no more of that. And Bitcoin, and they're not going to be making any more of that Bitcoin. It seems that those two things meld together very well. And again, now the Venezuelan government is starting to think of their Petro, which is a, a garbage shit coin, but they are thinking about it in the same terms, terms of land. I don't think that this is a bad way to start thinking about Bitcoin. That's just me. Tor and siphon activity surges in protest-stricken Belarus. Adriana Hamaker is writing this one for Decrypt yesterday. Uh, privacy browser Tor has seen a surge of activity from Belarus, where thousands took to the streets for a third night running on Tuesday while police responded with, oh, live ammunition. Yeah, let's just kill them. Internet connectivity and cellular service have been down in this Eastern European nation since Sunday evening. The blackout is widely believed to be government imposed, a result of widespread social unrest after a controversial presidential election saw Europe's last dictator, that's in quotes, Alexandria Lushenko reelected, quote, the government, the governmental monopoly on internet connection sucks because huge amounts of people in the country were totally disconnected. Kirill Lepantanovich, a software developer working in Belarus, told Decrypt, but savvy Belarusians have found a way around the outages. As well as using Tor as a bridge to access internet services, locals have turned to virtual private networks, the Telegram Messenger app, and Canadian proxy service Siphon, and that's spelled P-S-I-P-H-O-N. From near zero last Saturday, use of the proxy service has surged to 12.42 million connections from Belarus, and the country now leads the world in Siphon use. Telegram is a popular coordination tool amongst protesters worldwide, and Belarus has proved no exception. People unable to reach one another have relied on popular bloggers and Telegram news channels. Over 1 million people now subscribe to Nexta, which posts updates of protest activity and describes itself as a decentralized media organization of the 21st century. Some, alert to the threat of an internet shutdown after Sunday's election, made early provisions. Laptanovich works with a developer team called Cyber Congress, which is creating decentralized search on top of Cosmos blockchain. <laughs> the team made preparations for the outages over the weekend. Quote, we have, re we have redelegated the biggest part of the stake out from the country to foreign nodes to make our chain more sustainable and resistant, the developers tweeted on Sunday. Currently, most Belarusians developers, uh, Belarusian developers are using a VPN, which has been working since Laptanovich. If the internet outages continue, 
He's considering using a mesh network. Yes, mesh network for the win. These are made up of nodes that can send and receive messages and connect directly to one another. The most popular, Gotenna, uses ultra-high radio frequencies. In case of a total internet shutdown, only access to satellite internet is available or custom-designed connection routes via neighboring countries using mobile service and Wi-Fi, but the former is expensive and the latter requires some tech skills. So... Families and groups have been pooling together to create initiatives to unlock their Wi-Fi using wired instead of digital connections, says Laptanovich. However, a big limitation is the high cost of availability of useful hardware in Belarus. Even an ordinary Raspberry Pi is prohibitively expensive for the average Belarusian and must be ordered from Europe or China. Dude, that is sad. A Raspberry Pi prohibitively expensive? That should, those words should not even come close to being in the same sentence, much less the same freaking paragraph. Leptanovich is convinced, concerned about the negative impact on the country's IT business the internet shutdown will have. Employing Belarusian software developers has become popular amongst U.S.-based companies seeking remote employees. Experts warn that a centralized infrastructure, as in this case in Belarus, makes it much easier to shut the internet down, a measure already employed in India, Pakistan, Turkey, and other countries at times of civil unrest. Lyshenko has denied responsibility for pulling the plug on the internet. He's blamed the outages on distributed denial of service attacks from abroad without presenting any evidence whatsoever. Quote, the policy of internet shutdowns is gaining popularity around the world. Lukasz Olejnicek, I butchered it, sorry, dude. An independent cybersecurity researcher and consultant told Wired, but Belarus-based journalist Frenek Vikorka reported that some internet activity has been restored, but not access to new sites. Quote, it looks like authorities want people to know about the unprecedented police brutality last night, he tweeted. So yeah, Belarus blowing up. But, you know, the fact that they're already flocking to Tor, VPN, and Mesh Network, is that's good news. That's good news for privacy, but it's better news for the rest of us wondering at what point do people break and and are forced to learn about something and we're here. So we finally know what the breaking point of at least forcing somebody to figure out the way around the problems that they have is. And apparently it's the re-election of a lifetime dictator. Wish it wasn't that way, but it is. And that's going to do it for the morning roundup. I'd do a train wreck for you, but honestly, I think uh, the yam uh, postmortem was all the train wreck you need for the day. A lot of people are going to lose a lot of money on this. I have no idea what the metrics are because this shit happens so fast. I mean, from start to finish. I mean, what, what is it that I said? You know, for Yam, 10 days of development time, two days uptime, $500 million wiped out. And all I want to know is how the hell did they get the word out about Yam that fast to that many people in under two weeks? On that one, okay, that one, that's the important thing to note. The marketing of this was brilliant, next level. 
Some people are saying, well, they rode the coattails of Wi-Fi and all that stuff. But no, this, this entire sector came up faster than ICOs in uh, 2016, 2017, 2018. Right? There was a fairly serious warning as to what was going to happen. This thing, DeFi came on the scene in almost no time at all compared to ICOs up and coming. We had at least had a taste of ICOs with altcoins when those were coming up in, what, 12, 13, 14, and 15. I'm just saying, I can can shit all over the, the yam situation. I can point fingers and I can make fun of people, but what the lesson, the real lesson here is, well, there's two. Don't put your money into obvious scams. But the second one is, teach me how to market things like you marketed yam. I don't know who I got to throw into a jail cell to freaking interrogate on this, but I would do it in a heartbeat just to learn how they did this. The marketing. I don't care about the tech. The tech is obviously crap. I mean, honestly, the postmortem, if you're at like the, what essentially what happened is that the chain committed suicide, right? The governance structure was such that the only way that you can change any aspect whatsoever, including bugs, was to have a quorum but the bug in question caused a quorum to be impossible because of the amount of tokens that was produced by the damn bug itself. So the contract that's not voting holds so much of the, of the tokens that no quorum could be reached. In essence, the chain committed suicide. It's not even a chain. The, the, the system, the contract that they wrote essentially committed suicide. You cannot make recursive bugs like this. You just can't. This is what happens. If this had been like a real recursive bug, like uh, an if-then loop that somehow or another got locked in, you'd throw an exception error at one point or another, your computer would probably blue screen and you'd have to reboot after being scared that you might have, you know, burnt out your motherboard. That's about the size of that one. This one? People lost real money. People wanted to get rich quick. They wanted to, I don't know, seize what the early adopters of Bitcoin have been able to seize. I haven't even been able to seize that. And I'm, I'm not looking for that. I found what I need in Bitcoin. I don't need obfi- you know, continual obfuscation of what's really going on with the only thing on the outside of that is promises of getting rich at 22% per day. It's ridiculous. Don't feed these things with your money, Bitcoin, whatever. Honestly, I wouldn't flush a toilet to purchase these freaking tokens. The sewage treatment plant would probably be able to deal with my log of shit a hell of a lot better than these guys. I know that's, you know, a little harsh, but this keeps happening. We warned you. The Bitcoin maximalists were warning you. We're going to continue to warn you. We'll warn anybody who will listen and everybody will laugh and everybody will make fun of us and we're always going to be right. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.